Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello. Could I please speak with Nadia Tolokonikova? Yeah, that's me. Hello, Nadia. This is Paul, Paul Holdengraber, calling you from the quarantine tapes. Of course. Tell me, wh- wh- where do I find you at the present time? Uh, I don't talk about my geographic location for safety reasons. I, I, I thought you might say that, but maybe you can answer this question. How have you been spending this time, these past five months of the pandemic? Um, oh, I was reading a lot, reading. studying, um, yeah, catching up on political science. And uh, just trying to understand what's happening with the world. And um, I was recording a lot. I finished working, almost finished working on uh, Pussy Red's first studio album. Um, Yeah, and uh, filmed a couple of music videos um, just uh, by myself with uh, my boyfriend, with whom I am spending the quarantine. And and you've been reading a lot. Um, Can you tell me what, what, what have you been reading that really stuck with you? Um. Okay. Um. The from the last few books, it's definitely Naomi Klein, uh, The Green New Deal. Um, I love Naomi's uh, ratings. And um, yes. I'm preparing right now an, um, a video uh, for my Russian subscribers uh, about climate change. Unfortunately, it's, um, this issue is so-called controversial for whatever reason in Russia, though I don't see anything controversial. I mean, the facts are really speaking for themselves, uh, but uh, the propaganda machine is uh, portraying climate issue as not important one, and, and so, yeah, I just want to counteract it with uh, my video. So I'm making uh, research, and, and Naomi Klein's book is uh, really powerful on this issue. And, and aside from Naomi Klein, is there something else that, that might, um, I don't know if it's console you, but keep you company during these very strange, tumultuous times? I've been reading Mark Fisher, who is writing uh, writing about um, capitalism. His book is called Capitalist Realism, um, with a subhead "Is There No Alternative?" Uh, and it's about um, it's about us starting to perceive capitalism as the only one um, possible future for us. And just generally, I've been um, reading a bunch of books that help me to imagine alternative futures, like, for example, like how would green socialist future look like? How would, you know, more feminist future look like? Because I think we're just like totally fine with living in the present moment. Of, I mean, like today, right? Not thinking that much about like what will happen in 10 or 20 years from now on. So, yeah, Mark Fisher is an amazing one. What else? Noam Chomsky, I was mostly listening to his interviews and lectures, and um, Lovely Zizek enjoyed his books a lot. Have you read his recent I, book on the pandemic? No, uh, but I I have it in my Kindle. It's on my list. I haven't read it yet, uh, but I, I've heard him talking about this book. 
Now you you grew up in in the industrial city of and forgive me if I pronounce this incorrectly Norilsk. Um, yeah, totally right. <laughs> oh, well, you know, with my accent, I can manage many others. Um, <laughs> during this pandemic, as you know, Trump's Environmental Protection Agency has lifted an enormous number of regulations opening the door to rampant pollution of waterways and the atmosphere. Can you speak a little bit about the environmental conditions in your hometown now, what you hear about them? Um, well, it's hardly getting any better because, yeah, because the leadership in my country did not change. Imagine having Trump for, for the last 20 years. That, that's how uh, we Russians feel like. And Putin could not care less about um, pollution or about uh, warming the planet. Uh, growing up, I was seeing um, snow in my home city being black. <laughs> and then, um, so environmental issues became the first issues that I, I was concerned with as a kid. And feminism as well. But yeah, environmental issues were really pressing. But um, yeah. it's still like that. And honestly, it's just becoming worse because... Because they're still exploiting the same uh, factories, the same uh, the same machines as uh, were created or were constructed in the Soviet Union. So the problem with this um, savage capitalist uh, oligarchs, yeah, right, who, who who are in charge of everything in Russia right now, they don't want to invest any money in infrastructure, including um, including factories, uh, and so they just want to extract profits. And um, and bring it to um, and bring it somewhere else. They don't really spend money in Russia. They they live um, outside of Russia. They live in Switzerland. They live in Italy. So they just use my country as um, as, as a machine for extracting profit. So it's getting worse because uh, all the infrastructure is uh, um, eroding. So the recent spill of oil in Norilsk just showed um, showed to the whole world. Um, things that are happening on a daily basis. With, uh, people are dying, um, miners are dying, but it's unfortunately so normalized, it doesn't even surprise anyone in my home city. I mean, reading about your childhood there and and how you you were able to, to, to survive that extraordinary level of pollution, um, I, I was very curious, you know, if things had had in any form or fashion changed, but it it sounds like not at all. Do you think they've gotten worse? Um, I think yes, because um, because the people who are in charge of my city, they don't spend any money on improving conditions. They just keep using the same machines. Like let's say it was it was bought in like the, I don't know like, like I, I don't know the name of those machines, but like let's say machine X was bought <laughs> created in um, 1988. So since that time, they didn't they never invested money into improving this. Right. And I I've seen the same uh, problem happening on a smaller scale, but in my penal colony. Uh, where I was, uh, I spent one year yeah. uh, in one particular colony. I spent two years in jail, but one year in this particular colony where they were using slave labor systems. So the same thing was happening there. They don't, they don't care about working conditions. They don't care about um, improving sewing machines. Uh, so we're, we had to produce policing firms. And we didn't have, uh, simply we didn't have details to fix our own sewing machines. So we had to dam, um, had to um, cut our hands working on machines that were broken. So that's the same thing happening in my home city currently. 
Nadia, you, you've said that corporations, especially those that use natural resources, cannot exist without social control. Every one of us must have the ability, you say, to verify exactly what happens in these corporate empires. And every one of us must have the ability to affect what we find there. How do you think, or how can everyday people take back control from those corporations? And do you have a strategy to recommend to activists now working in America? <laughs> well, it's a big question. It's It not a- like I, I have accomplished that already in Russia and I came here to say to help you to, <laughs> yeah. to take back control. Yeah, good. Well, information is a big um, is a big tool that uh, all, all of us can use, and building your own alternative um, real system of information, informing your fellow citizens about what's happening, is really really important tool. And after they've been released from jail in 2014, we built this organization that's called Media Zona. It's a media outlet that we manage yes. by ourselves and yes. we fund it by ourselves. And right now, a big part of um, this organization is funded by the people. We started crowdfunding three years ago. And uh, it's growing really fast. It shows that people are thirsty for um, for real, not fake news. And that's, that's, that actually gives me hope. And we write about um, a lot about protest actions, about activism, and uh, in particular about environment, uh, environmental activism. In, in, in the early days of Pussy Riot, you said at one of your rallies, only when politics meets culture is something interesting born. I'm wondering if you remember saying that, first of all, and what that might mean to you now. I don't remember the exact moment when I said it, but I guess I was <laughs> I was saying something similar a million times because, um, because, because, because what? I don't know. Because for me personally, yes. politics and culture, they always coexist together. And I never knew how to answer any question. Um, what comes first, politics or art? Um, they're to me like them, like Nebus, Nebus trip. Um, I don't press uh, all their cultural workers to be necessarily political if they are aware of the political conditions and the way how they affect their art. And, um, you know, if they're aware of the political content, context and if they decide consciously they don't, don't want to make any political statements, that's okay. But I, I really don't appreciate an artist and any cultural workers. They are closing their eyes on the political context where they um, believe if they want it or not. And to me, art, personally, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it has to be like that for everyone. I think there is beauty in us being different, right? Uh, to me, personally, art is always about questioning status quo. And that's why I see a lot of um, beautiful potential on the intersection between politics and art. Um, you worked a little bit with Banksy, am I right? We participated in his Disneyland um, art project, yeah. That must have been exciting. Yeah, it was amazing. We're, um, actually, it happened because, uh, because of a seven-year-old kid who was um, a friend of ours and our supporter, um, and she was studying with uh, another kid who happened to be a kid of uh, Banksy's um, collaborator. And so, you know, because of the seven-year-old feminist, we ended up working 
but Bangs did not him personally. Uh, we never seen him, but uh, we had an honor to participate in his project. Someday, I hope to be able to to speak with him, even if uh, the voice be distorted and the location be uh, concealed. Um, th- this moment now, where we're using more and more the you know the phone, which used to be so exotic, now has become mm-hmm. has become so much part of our life. It's quite extraordinary how these these modes of conviviality now mean something again. Now, um, I read somewhere that that you have been influenced or have had uh, there's been an impact on 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 the way you you see and think about the world through the ideas of someone like Guy Debord, Guy Debord who may have informed your views on art and activism if if that is correct how so because the situationist always mattered to me as well Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't say that Guy Debord was um, among the top 10 of influencers on me and Isaret, but for sure, um, you know, his, his ideas, they affected the art scene, like, you know, radical art scene in Russia, and through through that, um, we were affected as well. If it was, if he wasn't among the top 10, who were the top three? <laughs> um, it would be a Russian writer, Vladimir Sarokin. Right. Yeah, he um, he's a conceptualist. I would say he works since the '80s, and uh, he to me he's the biggest living Russian writer who will be um, as known in history books as uh, Pushkin. Right now, <laughs> he's known as a controversial figure because he's not scared to write about stuff that's uncomfortable. Uh, but he was totally um, someone who informed. Me because I read his book when I was 13 years old, and the book was called Norm. And um, in one chapter of this book, he's talking about this society that um, it's everyone in this society that looks exactly like Soviet state um, in his descriptions of um, the society in the novel. And they have to eat this brown brick every day that does not taste well. And you have to uh, absolutely have to eat this brick every day. And people are coming up with, um, you know, their own methods how to eat the brick. Some people eat it with eggs. Some people just, you know, chew it really quickly and try to not to notice the taste. And in the end of the story, you realize that this brick is actually a piece of shit that <laughs> everyone in society has to eat. Otherwise, they'll be arrested. So, yeah, I was 13 years old and I read it. And I was like, whoa, this is absolutely amazing. I actually realized that art can be dangerous. Um, and yeah, and I think I mean ultimately, Guy Debord is about the same thing, right? Like he, he he's saying that um, art should not be spe- spectacle; it should not be like performance. Should protest uh, doesn't have to be just performative. Um, it has to be really dangerous. So I learned it from Sarah and would be definitely top one because before I thought that uh, art is something that we are reading in our history books and you know something from the past is normal. It's like um, it's. It's not dangerous. It cannot. It cannot change anything in in our lives because that is how they teach you in school about art. But you feel differently about it now. Yeah, since uh, since thirteen years old, and I uh, when I read him and uh, another, I came across another person from Russian conceptual art team. His name is uh, Dmitry Prigov. Dmitry Alexandrovich Prigov. Yeah, and. Uh, he was not, uh, you know, uh, openly political, but he would always talk about um, about social issues in a way that nobody talks 
Um, I mean, I, I haven't seen anyone like that when I was 14 or 13. So these guys, and who is the third one? I didn't even know. It's Maybe a, it, it would be. It's okay. I, I don't, I don't. Mean I think it would be Judy Butler. <laughs> who is this? Judy Butler. Right. American series. Uh, yeah. And she teaches in Berkeley now. Tell me, did, did you ever actually feel any discomfort um, about the enthusiastic embrace Pussy Riot received from American officials, be they politicians or journalists? Did you ever feel like you were being perhaps even used in a larger geopolitical game? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember the moment when we, uh, when we were, were in Washington talking in front of the U.S. Senate uh, about Russian political prisoners. And um, we were told that um, Senator McCain wants to meet us. And it was... <laughs> It was really interesting. I mean, I it was tempting because it's interesting to meet people even though like they're completely have completely different views. But we had to reject that offer because it, it felt to us that like, it might be not so. Um, I don't know, honest. I mean, there have been a couple of the, the offers like this that we had to reject because we felt like we might be used for for some, in, in, basically for some in, informational words that exist in this old Cold War paradigm, which means that all the dissidents from um, well, ex-Soviet Union, they are our friends, which is, I mean, like really part from, uh, like really far from reality because our views and views of Senator McCain cannot be more different. <laughs> yeah. And at the same, at the same time, when we were in, uh, we were talking at the United States Senate for Russian political prisoners, we were trying to subvert uh, this the situation where we can be used. Um, but we're talking as well about uh, Cecily McMillan, who was at the time in jail. She's um, an activist of Occupy Wall Street, and she elbowed a police, like supposedly she elbowed a policeman when he was arresting her. He grabbed her by her breast, and she ended up in Rikers Island in New York. So we did talk about Russian political prisoners, but also we said like, hey, look, like you're having your own political prisoners, and it's definitely not something that um, senators really wanted to hear. But that's what we said because we are anarchists and we showed solidarity to the people like us all around the world, and people like us are progressive leftists and anarchists. Uh, so would you 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 would call yourself at this moment an anarchist? Yeah, absolutely. Since childhood. <laughs> Since seven years old, when you read that book, but I'm, 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 I'm wondering what what that word means to you now, because you're not seven years old, and we find ourselves in such a volatile moment, and I'm curious how how you see the space of anarchy functioning, perhaps even productively at this moment. Hmm. I'm not really big at definitions, anarchy. It's more about spirit. It's about spirit of um, fighting with the um, oppressive state and. Uh, at the same time trying to use the most uh, from um, from the state while it exists. I mean, most of the time we just we just get or we're just being oppressed by the state, but um, it demands so much from us. Uh, it rarely gives us something back. So to me, it's, it's about it's about um, holding them accountable mm. and asking to help us instead of oppressing us. And ultimately, um, anarchism is about building your own alternative structures that are not dependent on, on anything mainstream and uh, relying more and more on them. DIY ethics, 
um, self-governing and um, a big, strong sense of um, community. You know, I, I, I wonder how influenced you are. You, you spoke about a number of different thinkers, but how influenced you are by some American thinkers. I noticed, for instance, in your, your most recent song, a lyric from your new song that says, your silence won't protect you. And if I, if I recall correctly, that's a, a, a direct quotation of the poet Audre Lorde. I had no idea, honestly. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, you see, it, it, these things circulate. And I, I'm, I just was wondering what that sentence might have meant to you when you used it. Um, well, it meant that when they arrest you, they tell that your silence will protect you, but it doesn't necessarily protect you all the time when you just prefer to be silent and authoritarian regimes are consolidating. Um, you see your friends being killed by the right-wing paramilitary. I think this is the moment when your silence will not protect you. Nadia, in, in nearly in closing, sadly, in, in, in creating Pussy Riot, you employed a very conscious publicity strategy to get the attention, perhaps, of the global media. Can you, can you speak a little bit about that, nearly retrospectively? And also, have you ever had any regrets about that? About, uh, about what? About the, the, the way in which so much of the Pussy Riot moment, as it were, was a publicity stunt as seen by some. Mm. Well, we, um, we gained most of the attention when we were in prison, so we didn't really control that. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't regret going to prison was, um, because yeah. I, because I, stand, I stood for what I believed in. But before, I wouldn't say we were really popular before. We were interviewed here and there, but um, um, I don't know. Um, I feel like our government is in charge of uh, bringing lots of publicity to us. And I don't really feel like it was a really smart move of Putin to put us in jail. Because um, in the end of the story, was, um, that, that move um, was something that gave us attention and gave us platform in the end of the story. Because we still use it in time. Do you do you um, think that there's some of the strategies that we used then, some of those PR strategies that might be actually helpful for this moment, um, for the uprising really that's happening in the United States? Well, it really helps to be clear um, about your goals. And um, well, I um, and sometimes I'm not clear about my goals. Sometimes I'm stupid, but mostly I'm trying to I'm trying to write simple statements when I interact with the press and uh, I'm, I'm just giving them points of uh, what I'm demanding from my government right now. What, um, um, you know, whether it's releasing political prisoners or, you know, changing, um, changing government policies, just trying to be really simple and laconic and uh, not laconic, but yeah, <laughs> laconic. Yeah, yeah no, no, I, 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 I understood. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, I feel like American actors, honestly, they're making a great job. And um, at the moment, I'm learning from them. I'm, right. <laughs> I don't really feel like I'm in a position to preach or teach them. Right. Yeah. How, how does, in, in, in really in closing, how does um, a, a term like defund the police resonate with you? Uh, it resonates really well. Uh, Russia has incredible amount of police. Um, if police per capita, um, yeah, we don't need so many. Uh, we don't need so many people watching us. Uh, what are we doing? Uh, the problem with the police is that nobody will trust them, them. And the more they travel around the world, well, not currently, but yeah, <laughs> normally when it's not COVID, yeah, the more they travel, the more I see that 
and you know, almost all the countries people don't really trust the police. And when something happens, we call our friends. We don't call the police um, more often. So it means that the whole system, the whole uh, police system, has to be restructured. Maybe it should be even called somehow differently. Um, maybe they should be replaced by social workers. Because because this distrust and this fear of the police is unfortunately global, and it's um yeah um I don't think we should waste our money on finding something that uh, doesn't help us. Well, Nadia, it's been it's been good to talk to you. Uh, stay safe. And, <laughs> thank and, you so much. And thank you so much for for taking this call, and all the very best to you. Um. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.